This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And today, we're going to talk about the flu. We've done a lot of talk over the last 19 months on COVID, but today we really want to focus on the flu. And we're delighted that we've got Dr. Cesar Termolo, who's the Associate Medical Director at Parkland Health and Hospital System, with us again. Thank you, Dr. Termolo, for being with us. Thank you, and it's always a pleasure to be speaking with you, Mr. Love. You know, as we look at flu and flu season, what would you say generally is when flu activity begins and when does it usually peak and then end? It usually begins somewhere around October or November. It, it always varies every year. It usually peaks around December, January, February, around then. Um, and then it usually ends around March and April. O- oftentimes what we do uh, is based on when it's flu season or not, for instance, when to give the flu shot. And oftentimes, since it is a moving target, sometimes we rely on infectious disease specialists. Lots of times we rely on, uh, uh, as a pediatrician, we rely a lot on children's hospitals to tell us when the flu season is over or Dallas County Health Department. But in general, it's uh, October, November is when it starts and March or April when it ends. So in your opinion, influenza, the flu, How serious is it? There's a wider way uh, that it can present. There could be a spectrum of disease as simple as a fever and a cough. And oftentimes the fever can be low grade. But usually when I see a patient with a flu, it's a very high fever, uh, at least more than 101.0, with usually a cough, um, body aches, and chills. That's actually kind of the lower end of how it can present. It can even be more serious. Patients can present with an asthma attack. They can present with a pneumonia. Uh, They can present with an exacerbation of their chronic disease. Uh, And unfortunately, it can even lead up up until death. So uh, there's a wide spectrum of disease that the influenza disease can present itself. If a patient has the flu, could they potentially have COVID-19 at the same time? There's gathering evidence that it can happen. Um, Flu and COVID has been shown to coexist. Uh, We we saw a lot of COVID and RSV, which is an infection in children this summer. It's only been a handful of cases, but we we do know that it can exist. And we also know that it's been shown to be more serious when they do coexist. From people that are exposed to the flu, How long does it take for the symptoms to appear after they've been exposed to the flu? Usually it's about two to three days for exposure. They they can develop symptoms, but, you know, it can occur very quickly as well, uh, more quicker than that. It just depends on the amount of viral load that the person receives and also their, their immune response to the infection that they get. Who would you say is very high risk? The groups that are highest risk for flu are the very young and the very old. For the very young children, younger than five, especially those younger than two. Adults, 
uh, age 65 and older, uh, and also those with chronic medical conditions such as asthma, uh, neurologic disorders, sickle cell disease, chronic lung disease, uh, those who are immunosuppressed, patients with diabetes and heart disease. So in general, it's the young, the old, and those with chronic medical conditions. You know, many people get annual flu shots. Should infants and small children get flu shots? I definitely believe that infants and young children should get the flu shot. Those who are less than two are especially susceptible to the flu and with serious complications. We can only give the flu shot for infants greater than six months of age, but after that, I definitely believe that they should receive the flu shot. If you get the flu shot, could it actually give you the flu? So most people say that. They usually say that I won't get my flu shot because I got the flu. But that's based on a misconception because oftentimes the misconception about what the flu is is the misperception that a runny nose and a cough is the flu. But really, a cough and a runny nose is not the flu. Uh, if You might have allergy to Bermuda grass and get a runny nose and a cough. And I have patients that come into the office and say, I got the flu because I went outside, I cut the grass, and I got the flu. That's not true. The real flu is present with those symptoms that I mentioned, high fever, cough, body aches, chills, and the like. So when those patients get the flu shot and they say they got the flu, it's usually that they said they got the flu shot and then afterwards they might have gotten, very likely could be coincidentally, have gotten a runny nose and a cough and they think that's the flu. But in reality, 99 cases out of 100, that wasn't the flu. It was just a runny nose and a cough and a virus or an allergy, but it wasn't the flu. So I, I do not believe that the flu shot can give you the real influenza. You know, if a patient uh, appears and they're exhibiting symptoms, we know that the flu symptoms and COVID-19 are similar. Is there a test you can give to detect the flu virus? I can tell you that at Parkland, we are currently using a combination test, which tests flu and COVID at the same time. So with the same swab and the same test, and most of us already know what that test is. You stick up a, a swab up your nose and it's not very comfortable. But with that same one test, we're testing for flu and for COVID. So ever since uh, October 1st, we started using that test. You know, you mentioned COVID and flu. So if you go to get your flu shot, can you get your flu shot and the COVID vaccine at the same time? Yeah, the, the CDC, we're, we're very thankful that the CDC has given us a lot of direction based on the evidence that we have. And they have given us direction that, yes, we can give COVID and the flu and other vaccines at the same time. So they can be co-administered. So for people that are, say, age 65 and older, do they get a different type of flu shot than younger people? Uh, in, in general, the, the dose for the really small ones, like the infants and the toddlers, they're um, basically the same, but it's a lower amount. So basically, it's the same material, but it's a lower amount. But it does also depend on the brand of flu shot, because there's a lot of different kinds of flu shots. But depending on the brand, it could be the same. But in general, 
In most brands, it's just a smaller amount for the uh, smaller children. This is Dr. Cesar Termulo from Parkland Health and Hospital System, pediatrician, specializes in respiratory disease. When we come back, a gripping and tragic story where the flu hits Dr. Termulo's family directly. But she was actually up and she was getting getting ready to, to go to school. I said, um, no, I, I think you, sh- you should stay home. Um, and, you know, I said, Reese, just you, I, I, this, the last thing I ever said there is, Reese, I think you're going to get, be- get better. Just, just pray that you'll get better. Hear firsthand why this message is so important to Dr. Termulo and his family when we come back next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Cesar Termulo, pediatrician with Parkland Health and Hospital System, continuing our conversation about the flu. Two years ago, this hit very, very hard in Dr. Termulo's family. You're about to hear the story. Tragically, in 2019, your daughter passed away from the flu, even though she had a flu shot. Can you tell us about her? Yeah, um, let, yeah let me tell you about her. So she was um, my firstborn child. She had absolutely no pre-existing medical conditions. She, she didn't have asthma. She didn't have, uh, she barely even had an ear infection. Um, uh, she was very healthy. Uh, she was on the dance team. She was on track to be like an officer on the Bishop Lynch uh, drill team. Um, she was in multiple honor societies. Uh, she was in the top 10% of her class, so she was on track to go to uh, a lot of different colleges. And we had just finished visiting uh, Texas A&M um, as a potential place to visit, or Notre Dame, which is where I went. I, I would have been happy if she went to one of those colleges. So she, I mean, she had a bright future ahead of her. Uh, and, and she got the flu shot. She got the flu shot. She she got a little bit late uh, because she was so busy with her studies. We, we couldn't get it to her until her uh, Christmas break. Um, but in January 10th of 2020, um, well, actually January 9th of 2020, and I can tell you that it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, um, the nurse's office called my wife that she had a fever and immediately when my wife relayed that to me, immediately I, I thought, well, she might have the flu. So we brought her to my office, and, and, and I knew she had the flu shot, but we brought her to my office. We had her tested for the flu and also strep. Um, her, her strep test was negative, but she, she had the flu. She had flu B, and she had the same flu that all of my other patients had. And so we did what we're supposed to do, and we put her immediately on um, Tamiflu. She got her medications, and uh, I, I checked on her at 11 o'clock at night. And you know, she was doing what every other teenager does. She was uh, she was looking at her Snapchat and she was texting people. And she had done her homework. Had told her to go to bed. Uh, I checked her on her the next morning, and she, you know, she didn't even she wasn't even as sick as my other patients with the flu because she wasn't having a round the clock fever. Uh, I checked her in the morning, and she, she didn't have any fever. Uh, she just said she was uh, in some pain. And I examined her, and I checked her lungs. And, and you, know, you know, she wasn't like all my other patients who were basically uh, lying on the floor saying that, you know, they were going to die. 
um, with the flu. They look very bad. But she was actually up and she was getting getting ready to, to go to school. I said, um, no, I, I think you should, uh, you, you should stay home. Um, and, you know, I said, Reese, just you, I, I, this is the last thing I ever said to her is, Reese, I think you're going to get, be- get better. Just just pray that you'll get better. Um, and I uh, got a phone call, ironically, at, no, at 11 o'clock. And this is just a little bit only 24 hours after she first developed the fever. Um, I just got a, a frantic call from my wife that she had called. My wife had called 911 because Reese had stopped breathing. And so she had called 911, and the EMS was on the site, and her heart stopped beating. And it was tragic knowing that it was basically 10 o'clock that she was still able to go take a shower. Uh, she got up, and she was still working on her homework. She went up. She went to take a shower. She went back to bed. Uh, my wife had, at 10 o'clock, had gone down to make her something to eat, and she went. she had gone upstairs, and she... Um, when she got upstairs, Reese was passed out. Um, so it was only 24 hours she went to having her first fever until she had she had passed away. Less than 24 hours with the flu, and we had her diagnosis. She had the flu shot, and she was taking medication. And that's how serious and dangerous the flu can be. Thank you for sharing that story with us. Thomas and I certainly express our condolences. Why do you advocate the way you do related to flu shots after this tragedy in your family? You know, a lot, a lot of people ask me, so doesn't that just show that the flu shot doesn't work? Why should you even get the flu shot? So the thing is, I, I know that with the flu, there's, there's over 200 subtypes or subclasses of the flu. Um, people know that there's a flu A and a flu B. And the thing is, is that in the flu shot, we can only put three different subtypes in the flu shot. Well, in 2019, 2020, in that winter, the predominant flu type was the flu B Victoria, which was not covered in the flu shot. And that was a, a more more dangerous uh, flu. Flu B is more dangerous. And unfortunately, that is the one that caused her to pass away. So I, I know that it's just a statistic that there might be a flu that circulates that isn't covering the flu shot, but unfortunately it became a uh, the most horrific tragedy in my life. So a lot of people then ask me, so then why why do you advocate for the flu shot? Uh, e- even if it doesn't, you know, you can kind of see why it might not work, but why do you still say you, sh- you should take the flu shot? And I, what, what I say to that is, well, would you get on 35, would you drive on 35 and not wear a seatbelt? Okay, it's, it's the same logic. Seatbelts, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation, seatbelts save 90% of lives in a car accident. So 15,000 lives are saved with a seatbelt. But there are 2,000 lives who succumb to an accident wearing a seatbelt. You know, you might hit an embankment or high-speed accident or for whatever reason, even if you wear a seatbelt, you might die. Seatbelts are not 100%. And the same thing with the flu. Um, The flu, according to studies, can save the life of uh, over 60-70% of potential deaths. And like I said, the statistic doesn't put a face on on the personal tragedy, but that's what happened. That's what happened to me. So I think that everyone should get the flu shot. It's not 100% effective, but it still saves many lives, and it could 
for those listening, it could save many of your lives if you get the flu shot. Thank you so much for sharing that advocacy with us. I'm going to pivot a little bit, and I have a question. If someone has tested positive for COVID-19, should they still, at that time, get a flu shot? Uh, Yes, I believe that one should. As I mentioned before, you can't get the flu and you can't get COVID at the same time. There have not been any proven side effects from getting the flu shot after getting COVID. Uh, Interestingly enough, there is one study out there that shows that if you get the flu shot, you actually have less chance of getting the COVID. So it's, it's kind of like an indirect way of helping you not get COVID. So I do believe that you should get the flu shot even if you have gotten COVID. You know, I know there's probably no scientific evidence on this, but the fact that we were so diligent wearing masks last year, do you think that had an impact on the flu season? I really do think so. Um, And there have been uh, many studies that show that masking was effective, um, even though it was, you know, to prevent COVID, that it did make the flu season a lot. uh, uh, It minimized the amount of flu that we had last year. Uh, So I really do think that that masks did make a big difference uh, in the amount of flu that we had last year. So I really, really believe that. But I do have one caveat that there's a lot of things since COVID happened that we really don't understand, um, such as RSV. Um, RSV, which we always only see in the wintertime, now we're seeing in the summer. Um, COVID has just made everything kind of topsy-turvy. So I, and I say that mainly because I don't know what's, what's, what's going to happen this flu season. Uh, so I still want to recommend that even if you mask, you still get a flu shot. Um, it's not going to prevent all cases of flu uh, if you wear a mask. So I really think that masking did help the flu and the amount of flu that happened. But as in all things, we never know anything 100%. What makes one flu year worse than another? We always hear that. I think what makes things worse would be a lot of different reasons. Um, That 2019-2020 season um, which is well, when my daughter passed away. Um, it was it was 200 uh, deaths that year, um, pediatric deaths. And so, to me, what kind of makes one think it's it's a worse year is just when you look at the data um, in terms of what's been going on. And you know, I, I realize that you know my daughter is, is one, but there was there was also 200 that occurred that year of pediatric deaths. Um, so I, I think the thing that makes one think about what's when it's worse is just by by trying to look at the Dallas County website, the Texas Department of State Health Services website, or the CDC to kind of know what's going on to see what the trend is. Dr. Cesar Termulo, Parkland Health and Hospital System, and to the Termulo family, again, our deepest condolences, but thank you for sharing a very important message. His daughter's name was Reese, and every flu season, it would be really good just to remember that precious girl and in her memory, realize that the flu is another killer virus among us. When we come back, we're going to take a look at something going on in hospitals, in the facilities themselves, that is of great concern. We'll tell you more about it when we come back on the human side of healthcare. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. 
with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're going to now talk about workplace violence. You've read recently about what happens with flight attendants. It happens in every industry. Today, we're going to talk about workplace violence that occurs in the hospital. We're going to be talking with Walter Cassidy, Senior Vice President at Baylor Scott & White. Walter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. So, Walter, what are we dealing with here? How bad is this problem in hospitals? Well, workplace violence takes uh, many shapes and sizes in our in our hospitals and our clinics. Uh, it can be defined as acts of aggression, physical assault, destruction of property, uh, threatening behavior, and even verbally abusive remarks. And um, over the past year and a half with, with COVID-19 pandemic, mask mandates, change in the visitation policies, uh, healthcare workers have just become more and more susceptible to this type of behavior. You know, that kind of reminds me of some of the things we hear about flight attendants, you know, having, you know, violent passengers on the planes. So what are you doing to help combat this violence? Often the case in healthcare, uh, unfortunately, is that the majority of this violence is, you know, perpetrated by the patients, which, you know, are the very people that our clinicians are trying to help. And it just creates uh, a multiple layer of complexity, uh, which then requires us to have a, you know, a multifaceted approach to solve these issues. And we really break those down into kind of three sections. There's, there's regulatory solutions, there's hospital administrative solutions, and there's technology solutions. So I'll just briefly kind of run through the regulatory aspect of it. Um, there have been several bills uh, introduced and voted into law that have very specific penalties for assaulting clinicians in the emergency department, for example, and also require hospitals to investigate and act upon any instances of workplace violence in healthcare. And that can lead up to, you know, formal investigations, internal, external, lots of things uh, in that arena. And also from a regulatory standpoint, both OSHA and the Joint Commission have recently published recommended future workplace violence guidelines to help us ensure we have mechanisms in place to identify, track, and then resolve all these workplace violence events. So what about from an administrative point? What are you doing there? You know, we've been prioritizing prevention of workplace violence for over a decade. Um, And one of the greatest challenges that we have um, is that there is a culture of acceptance. You know, this started in the emergency departments and the behaviors was just considered part of the job, you know, and that's really uh, one of the biggest problems that we've got to solve is changing that culture of it not being acceptable. What are you doing to affect that? And we use uh, very robust training programs, uh, educational programs, and they really focus on, on three things, recognition of workplace violence, prevention of workplace violence, and then de-escalation of actual events. And, you know, this training it varies from, you know, a clinical recognition of an issue that can manifest into a behavioral concern all the way to the other end of the spectrum of training our staff on how to deal with active shooter type situations. And for our organization at Bear Scott & White, we have a slogan that we use system-wide that is a safety in the workplace program. And this helps raise awareness of all these concerning behaviors and to help train staff on how to report uh, these inappropriate things immediately um, to either their local supervisors, uh, the HR systems, or even covertly if they choose to do so. So, Walter, is there technology that can help with this? 
Yes, uh, Steve, absolutely. As, you know, healthcare is evolving with technology as, as the forefront of many solutions. And so we've got uh, options such as wearable panic devices and geofencing technology that allow us to quickly identify when a staff uh, may be in need of support or assistance. And across the other spectrum is, is tools that we have embedded in the electronic health records that also allow our clinicians to better assess a patient that could be prone to you know, violent behaviors before they occur. You know, you mentioned in some of your answers about COVID-19 and the impact it's had on workplace violence. Can you expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. Uh, as we know, COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic has really uh, affected everything across our society, and, and healthcare is no different from that. Uh, most notably, the restrictions and elimination of, of visiting hours, uh, you know, coupled with the unknowns of the virus, have really led to you know a stressful and emotionally charged environment, uh, not only for our clinicians, but for our patients. And of course, you know we've all experienced the changing and sometimes confusing recommendations related to masking, um, what the CDC says versus what our, our, our local and state government says. And so uh, those things all together have really provided uh, the, the opportunity for violence to really be increased uh, in the healthcare setting. You know, you mentioned also that many times the patients that the staff is actually treating are the people that become violent. But I'm assuming family members can also be violent. Am I correct? Exactly. Uh, that is the case as well. Uh, not only do the patients sometimes become violent, but you can imagine a scenario where you're going to the hospital to visit a loved one and you're not allowed to do that because of you know trying to keep the patient safe. And so that creates just a very um, painful conversation for both you know the staff and the family members and the loved ones that want to go in and visit their um, their, their loved ones. You know, as you've learned from COVID-19, as you've learned from acts of violence in the hospital, as you look in your crystal ball and look to the future, what do you think workplace violence will be in the future, say a year from now, two years from now? The most concerning thing that that we have seen that that we've got to resolve is our clinicians that are leaving the bedside. Um, In some cases, they're leaving healthcare altogether because of the violence that they're experiencing. And so we've got to begin to really focus and hone in on uh, not only the safety mechanisms we put in work, uh, you know, in place at work, but also on, you know, a significant emphasis on their work-life balance. Um, You know, our clinicians have been working nonstop throughout this uh, pandemic. Well, that's not new for them, right? This was just a new aspect of that. And so we've got to ensure that we've got resources in place to support for our, support our clinicians. Um, and, and at the end of the day, the most important, the work that, that we can do is to take care of each other so we can provide uh, safe patient care. We've been listening to Walter Cassidy. He's with Baylor Scott & White, Senior Vice President there with some excellent thoughts, Steve, on setting up that, yes, it's well, the hospitals have not escaped this problem. You know, you're right. We do have problems in the hospitals. We want people to be transparent. We want to get their feedback. We want their satisfaction. We know sometimes, Thomas, they're dissatisfied, but we need to hear that. They need to have a voice. But there's a way to express that in a nonviolent way. So that's what we need to focus on, dissatisfaction in a respectful way. I used to work for a company that part of their mission statement was that we would treat each other with dignity, compassion, and respect. 
And if you think about each of those three words, that's really a pretty good mission. We're going to talk to Dr. Fawad Khan. He's Senior Vice President and Chief of Integrated Behavioral Health at Parkland Health and Hospital System. And to begin this, let's pick right up with what we were just talking about. So if you're dissatisfied, how do you express that in a healthy, productive way? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, dissatisfaction and, you know, we, we come from the world where oh, the industries think and likes to think that the customer is always right. And we want to hear their dissatisfaction. It guides us into performing better. Uh, I think over time, cultures shift and cultures shift sometimes like pendulums. There was a time in the world where you could not even express dissatisfaction and you had to take what, what you could. And then came the idea, no, we need to hear from, from our customers. And the industry started to accommodate people and their opinion. And customers' opinion became very valuable. And there was always the best effort put in to accommodate the customer's opinion. And healthcare industry, education industry, and other industries have have, uh, worked on that. And that freedom of expression is part of our country's icon, you know. Uh, it's everybody believes in the idea of freedom of expression. So hospital systems have been building one step after another to develop systems where patients can express their dissatisfaction, they can reach out. Uh, and I know at our own hospital, there are several avenues where complaints and grievances can be provided to the hospital administration or the clinicians so that it can be attended to. I think where the problem has started to become more prominent is where freedom of expressing yourself is now at the cost of somebody's freedom of health, safety, and uh, of that person. And so uh, when my idea of how I express my dissatisfaction becomes another person's experience of oppression, that becomes the problem. Um, So yes, we would like people to express dissatisfaction and we would love to help them how to express it the right way. Not only that, I think expressing it the right way goes a long way in getting it corrected very quickly. I want to also emphasize something which is important. You know, we serve thousands of people every day here at Parkland Hospital. There are sadnesses that happen all the time. People die, people don't make it, people continue to remain ill. And we, despite our best efforts and most of our um most of our patients continue to see us as having done our best and appreciate that. It's some, the idea of dissatisfaction becomes as a means of uh, coming out and expressing your dissatisfaction in manner that is not acceptable. I think that's the difference. And I think hospitals have worked very hard to create avenues where people can express dissatisfaction. We're talking about violence in the workplace. It seems that it's almost everywhere now. And when we come back, have you seen where physicians, nurses, support staff, etc., are actually afraid to go to work? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I deal with it all the time. Dr. Fawad Khan from Parkland Health and Hospital System. And if you would like to hear this entire interview, catch it on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. More on compassion, respect, and safety next. 
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Fuad Khan, who is the Senior Vice President and Chief of Integrated Behavioral Health at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Dr. Khan, welcome back. And I'd like to start with just asking, is there a direct correlation between violence like this and mental health? Well, um, that's a very good question. Mental illness and violence has been a, a, a something that has been known for a long time. However, I think, you know, a lot of um, assumptions that mental illness is always associated with violence is just overinflated. You know, you can have patients who suffer from some illness where they have a delusion or a belief that they are at risk of being harmed or somebody is going to do something. And that's really driven by a mental illness that can be treated. Then there's a couple of other subsets, you know, where there's severe panic or trauma that, you know, drives people into a kind of a clouded state of thinking where they cannot think through a an issue and may end up with a behavior that is violent, uh, usually trying to escape. And then there's the third subset where there are patients who have mental faculties that are affected either through, you know, so for example, dementia or through a brain injury or an acute confusional state, we call it delirium. Uh, such as in severe fever or some other abnormality of the chemistry of the of the body where which affects the brain, these three subsets will often be at risk uh, not necessarily always but be at risk of violent behaviors but that 's it and then there 's a subset of of behaviors that are violent and they are driven by a wish to uh, express themselves through violence and that are not driven by mental illness. You know, as you look at hospitals today, and especially some of our healthcare systems, they are large, complex medical systems. Many times when people access their healthcare, it's confusing and they really feel lost. Do you think sometimes they act out because they just feel their voice isn't being heard? You know, this is a very important thing for us to understand. Our healthcare system and maybe many of our systems are have become very complex. And then, you know, we come from a historical perspective of there used to be a doctor and there used to be a patient to now there's a whole system. And the larger the system, uh, the more complex it is frustration, long wait times, inability to comprehend the system and get through to the right person is definitely a reason where people uh, feel dissatisfied. And, you know, when your loved one or yourself is ill and you may start feeling very much cornered into a helplessness and helplessness will lead to either sadness or anger. And uh, yes, that is an important thing which the healthcare systems are constantly struggling with. We know we have several initiatives at looking at access and reducing the burden of finding the way through these complexities, not to be bur- uh, not to burden the patient with it, but to take on that responsibility. And and there's a lot of work going on in such a thing. You know, when you think in terms of people that come to hospitals, I mean, you're a physician, you took an oath. We know the clinicians are going to do their very best to treat the patient and have good outcomes. 
Unfortunately, sometimes you have bad outcomes. You might even have the death of a patient. Does that sometimes trigger family members to become violent? You know, I don't have an accurate data on the fact that when outcomes don't go the way we we would naturally desire, does that really lead to more violence? Or is it a subset of, uh, of patients who will tend to be violent no matter what is the outcome? You know, we're not talking about violence where, uh, you know, hospitals are very accommodating. I mean, our... our our education of our staff is constantly do not retaliate. Even if somebody behaves badly with you, do not be coercive. Do not uh, think of them as being in stress. And we are very respectful of that thing. However, you know, much of the violence we are talking about here, which is concerning to the healthcare industry is violence where, uh, for example, a uh, patient asks for a cup of coffee and, you know, the coffee is not the way they like. They throw the coffee at the face of the nurse. Uh, or uh, I, I want to be discharged to a hotel. I'm not going to go to a shelter. Uh, and if you don't do it, I'm going to break the windows. Um, we are struggling more with that type of violence where a, a certain idealized goal is requested, which is not within the abilities of a healthcare delivery system. Uh, we 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 are not responsible really to you know purchase uh, hotels for patients who don't want to go to a, another place, or uh, we cannot solve some of the problems of social type. But when the patients request that and we can't give them, and then there's we are met with violence. That's an area where we struggle with. We all understand when there's bad outcomes, there will be patients and family members who will be crying. Some of them will be unhappy. And we do a lot of training of our of our staff how to handle that. And we successfully handle that. And I don't think there's evidence to say that this is the subset of people who are more involved in violence. I think it's actually not that way. You know, we're all stakeholders in workplace violence. So as we Turn to our listeners and to the general public. What advice do you have them on they can help be part of the solution to this issue? That's very well put. Uh, you know, education industry, airline industry, healthcare, law enforcement, and many other industries are experiencing violence. And it says it all. I mean, it's not a certain industry that's at the root of the problem. It's actually... Um, a society's problem. Every one of us has a responsibility. We all uh, we all value freedom, freedom of expression, but we also value a freedom that actually uh, upholds the sanctity and safety of others as well. We as a society have to take it up, and one of the steps to do that is to recognize it, like you both are, um, you know, talking to me about, uh, as we are working hard to bring it to the public. We need to help them understand it's on the rise. We are all as a society going to raise voice against it. We are going to denounce it. We're going to resist it and we're going to not condone or we're not going to explain it under that. Oh, well, this was accepted acceptable because you know, of X, Y, and Z. It's just not acceptable to be violent at the cost of somebody else. Yes. 
where we want, we, where we find the reasons that they, you know, it's coming out of a mental illness or something that the healthcare industry can solve, we will do our best to solve it. But all the society has to rise to the occasion and, and be the solution finders. Have you seen where physicians, nurses, support staff, et cetera, are actually afraid to go to work? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I deal with it all the time. I'm on the Workplace Violence Committee. Um, we're constantly dealing with nursing staff. Uh, nursing, I, I keep saying nursing, I should say all, uh, but nursing staff, because they're the most exposed to violence, uh, they are constantly suffering. And, you know, uh, we all understand trauma, how trauma shapes our lives, how trauma um, instills an avoidance of fear and an anxiety in us, and people are having trouble with uh, their, uh, you know, work and life uh, philosophy because they're traumatized. I mean, you don't want to come to work at the, with the fear that I'm going to be beaten up again. Uh, so, yes, we see it all the time. It's just so much. We are putting in so many resources in increasing our employee assistance programs and other ways of uh, supporting our, our, our staff. That's Dr. Fuad Khan with Parkland Health and Hospital System talking about a very critical issue across multiple industries. Steve, we really have drilled home the human side of healthcare today, have we not? You're so right, Thomas. You know, when we think in terms of this program and the hospitals giving back to the community, I think one of the things we can all glean from any of our guests, whether it's physical health or mental health, it all fits together as the human side of healthcare, and that's what this show is all about. Thanks for being with us today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next Sunday for the human side of healthcare.